Hey everyone, Dan Gavazdan here. Before we get to our regular episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, I wanted to talk briefly about something that I'm sure means as much to you as it does to me. That something is a man whose work has been the subject of our past two seasons of this show. None other than Stan Lee. If you've been reading the news for the past few weeks, you've likely seen some pretty scary headlines involving Stan. Articles with titles like, Stan Lee sues ex-business manager for financial abuse, fraud, and selling his blood. And, is Stan Lee being held prisoner by real-life villains? And, Stan Lee denies elder abuse, leave me and my friends alone. It's a confusing time to be someone who cares about Stan Lee. On top of being 95 years old, in just the past few months he's been dealing with the death of his beloved wife Joan, a fight with pneumonia, millions of dollars disappearing, and a bizarre blood heist. For me, the breaking point was seeing him in a weakened state at the Silicon Valley Comic-Con signing. In the video posted by Bleeding Cool, you can see Stan slumped over in his chair, signing comics, while a man in a bowler hat and shades places a heavy hand on Stan's shoulder and helps him dispel his name. Now, I don't normally trust anyone who wears a bowler hat or shades indoors, but I especially don't trust anyone who would allow Stan to exert himself in this way in the state he appears to be in. For anyone who's had the opportunity to meet Stan at a convention, these images should be shocking. Even just last year when I saw Stan at the Los Angeles Comic Con, he sauntered up on stage in his members-only jacket and kicked his legs up like he owned the place. Things seem markedly different now. It is true that everyone eventually gets old, and Stan has certainly lived a full life. But all these stories seem to point towards something more sinister. I can't tell you how many times I've read stories about the people that surround Stan and how they're vultures waiting to feed on his wealth. In the past few weeks, some of Stan's former co-workers have reached out to me to express just how upset they are, but also how unsurprised they are by this turn of events. We've all known that Stan has always surrounded himself with people who didn't have his best interests at heart. As for myself, I don't know how to feel, except that all of this has left me a bit heartbroken for Stan. I want to trust the videos that Stan has been publishing to reassure us that he's fine and being cared for. But I also can't help but wonder just how easily coerced someone in his state might be. However, without any real personal accounting of what's going on, I can only make a guess and try to react accordingly. To that point, I'm going to include a list of links to articles about what's currently going on with Stan in the show notes of this episode and try to keep you up to date with anything important that I hear. I ask that you read them. From whatever angle and perspective in life you're approaching them from, fan, creator, friend, Stan has influenced us all. I ask that if after you read them and you are moved to do something, that you consider how you might act. If you work in the industry, do you have a connection to Stan that might help to clarify things or move the needle? If you're a fan, would you reconsider paying for Stan's signature at the next convention? Stan has given us many things over the years, and while no man is perfect, I think we'd all agree that he's someone worth fighting for. I'll be considering what actions I can take over the next few weeks, and I'd love to know what you all plan to do. Thanks for listening, and now back to our regular show. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle in 1962, last Wednesdays afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. Oh, the amazing spider talk. Oh, the amazing spider talk. 
Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Wow, very serious there, Mark. Very proclamatory. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Okay. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for Episode 5 of the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man television universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Ooh, Dan, you're you're you're, you're dropping some uh, spoiler bombs in that little uh, intro there because, uh, yeah, in this second season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we've been taking a look at how Spider-Man hit the big time during the Stan Lee and John Romita senior run on the book. But today's show, instead of talking about the book, uh, we're going to be taking a look at Spider-Man's first foray into animation. I mean, really any outside of comic adaptation of the character, which is with the Spider-Man cartoon from 1967, uh, also known as Spider-Man 67, right? That's that's a, an accepted title of the, of the cartoon, I believe. I, I think so, yes. And we're going to be joined by a very special guest for this conversation. I'm really excited to reveal who our guest is and, and who we interviewed, but we'll do that in a bit. But first I have to say that all of the episodes that we'll be talking about today, all the episodes of Spider-Man 67, are available on DVD as part of a mega compilation. But if you're really slick and sly, you can find them all on YouTube as well. Uh, just, you know, I guess tip your waiter uh, extra. I, I don't know what you're talking <laughs> um, So whether you've watched them all a million times or never at all, we hope you enjoy our episode called Where'd the Webs Go? Shirk his duty again. 
Killers, killers, beware. Spider-Man is here. Thus, a legend is born. As a new name is added to the roster of those who make the world of fantasy the most exciting realm of all. So, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about Spider-Man 67 and what makes it such a special addition to Marvel's uh, history, I guess. Sure, Dan. Well, well, just because I'm older than you doesn't mean that I actually, like, watched this show as a kid when it was oh, on the sure, air. Okay? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> just want to clear that up right now. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Doc Spidey has. I don't know. Or maybe I'm even making him a little too old for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, so... Uh, Spider-Man 67, as the name implies, uh, debuted in 1967 in September as part of the Saturday morning block on ABC television. Uh, it was there actually for uh, its first two seasons. It ran three seasons total. The third one was uh, distributed solely in uh, syndication as kind of became the fad for cartoons or excuse me, animated series uh, during that time. A Canadian company, Grand Trey Lawrence Animation, produced season one, and then uh, Krantz Films took over, uh, which is going to bring us into our guests in a little in a moment. Um, but uh, you know, as I as we in- mentioned in the intro, Dan, I mean, this was basically the first non comic book adaptation of Spider Man, um, yeah. and um, you know, it, it, it had its contemporaries in terms of I think you know I believe Fantastic Four. Had an animated series around the same time Captain America did. I mean, Marvel was was pushing uh, its animated line uh, during this era, and it made sense. It's it's you know the, the the comics had certainly hit the big time, and the distinguished competition certainly had uh, some of its characters in live action format. Of course, you had the the George Reeves Superman's uh, television series, the black and white series that was a big deal, and then uh, around the same time that or just just before uh, Spider Man sixty seven was of course Batman sixty six with Adam West. Um, so, uh, it, it, like I said, this, this is where comics were going. This, this kind of external adaptation. The joke was, um, when, when this series was in the works, uh, according to the research that I had done for the, um, my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, uh, John Romita, like, just thought this was terrible idea that, you know, the animation in terms of the quality was crap, which, you know, as we joked about Spider-Man, but didn't have webbing from the neck down on his costume, uh, one of many cost-cutting measures <laughs> of the show. And and it was basically Stan's idea to just, you know, find any way he can to print money using his IPs. Ramita has gone on to say, like, after the fact, like, yeah, the show is crap, but for a lot of people, this was their introduction to Spider-Man. This was their introduction to this universe. And um, even though the show itself... While it did have some of the cast of characters that we know and love, like J. Jonah Jameson and Betty Brant and certain villains like Doc Ock and Electro and Lizard and Green Goblin, it also had um, some other uh, new creations. <laughs> um, who, who are some of your favorite uh, new villains from the Spider-Man 67 series, Dan? Yeah, I like Dr. Zap the best. Yeah, Dr. Zap. Uh, I like the Fiddler. He he played a, a fiddle that did stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the Mole then, Man uh, episode is really fun. Yes, yes. Um, and then, of course, 
my favorite, more so for the name, is Dr. Magneto, although it's spelled M-A-G-N-E-T-O, but I guess so as not to create brand confusion, it was pronounced Magneto instead of Magneto. Whatever happened to that Magneto guy, Dan? You would have thought he would have taken off. This goes to show you need more than powers and a cool name to be a cool character, right? Well, you, you, you joke, but but actually it's interesting how uh, you know reliant on the comics much of the show is. I watched the show for the first time over the past three weeks, just binge-watching it, and, and I was kind of struck by how somewhat faithful to the comics the, the, the show was for in a large part. Although it does weirdly reflect some of the things we've talked about on our show, about Stan Lee and his thoughts about the goblin being, you know, a sarcophagus-related character. And there's a lot of kind of weird idiosyncrasies about the show and and its relation to the comic. Yeah, and I I always found it strange that, like, whereas, you know, Jonah and Betty Brant seem to be very key characters in the supporting cast, like, you don't see a lot of MJ or Gwen. I don't know if you see any of them. I mean, they, maybe they show up for an episode here and there, like, in the background. Uh, you know, even in the in the Origin of Spider-Man episode, which kicked off season two and, again, ties into our guests, you know, like, the bullies, it's not Flash Thompson. It's, like, some guy named Moose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, Spider-Man ends yeah. up dating a woman named Susan Shaw. Right. Never seen her again, right? I guess do we need – do you need to add her to your top ten loves of Spider-Man list that you did back in the day, Dan? Yeah, I, I might have to. Although I'm, I'm surprised we didn't get a uh, run-in with her during the Spider-Verse uh, issues. That's true. And speaking of the Spider-Verse issues, I mean, again, just talking about the legacy of this show, uh, it's worth noting. I mean, a lot of – uh, more modern creators have cited the show uh, as a major influence on them. Dan Slott um, more or less credits the show and, and Adam West Batman for that matter as kind of being his his uh, entry point into the world of superhero comics. He would go home and, and watch those. Apparently those two shows were on back to back on whatever station he was watching back in the day. And that was like his 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 uh, gateway, which is pretty cool. And then Ron Friends actually talks about the show a lot if you are friends with him on Facebook or follow him on Facebook. Uh, I think just recently he had um, some artwork up where he was kind of doing like a, here's a panel from Spider-Man 67 and here's something that, you know, I think it was from Spider-Girl that was influenced from it. Uh, so again, the show has unquestionably had a legacy despite maybe some of the cost-cutting measures and, and kind of its quirks that are both endearing and also quite odd <laughs> even from a quirk level uh <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's an object of its time animation was going through a really tough time uh in the 60s you know it, like a lot of studios were going out of business and and there was not a lot of money to produce this stuff so you would you know see them reusing animation a lot one of the reasons that uh you know the the showrunner uh ralph bakshi was kind of brought onto the show is, you know, he he could reuse elements from other, you know, other shows that he had done, like Rocket Robin Hood, to kind of flesh out the show and, and produce it for a lower cost. And, and you know, that's what you got because animation was just wasn't in a healthy place at the time. 
Well, well, Dan, since you kind of let the cat out of the bag here, why don't why don't we segue into who our guest is and, would, and would who? You, would you say I let the Fritz the cat out of the bag? Oh my goodness, that that you should you should almost be kicked off this podcast for that joke, Dan. <laughs> um, but yeah, Dan, who, who did you interview? Because because uh, it's a technical uh, difficulties we had. The interview was just you. So I don't even know. Do we have an interview, Dan? I, I wasn't a part of it. So this is a great mystery to me right now. I promise you uh, we do have an interview. And our guest today is none other than the celebrated animator and director Ralph Bakshi, who if you you know have heard his name or even haven't heard his name, he's famous for his kind of alternative, independent, and adult-oriented animation projects from the 1970s, you know, uh, including Fritz the Cat, Wizard, uh, Heavy Traffic, Lord of the Rings, Fire and Ice, and I guess, you know, I guess his most modern, you know, recent thing, you know, Cool World, you know, people have seen Cool World, you know, but before all of those landmark animation movies, you know, Ralph Bakshi was a young creator who just started his own studio, Bakshi Productions, and, uh, that studio began work on a series called, like I just said, Rocket Robin Hood, but then was asked to take over the 1967 Spider-Man we've been talking about, and he was the showrunner, director, animator, producer on seasons two and three of the show. Well, that that sounds amazing. I mean, you know, he's. I believe those are the seasons where apparently the the budget was cut further, which I'm sure you're going to get into with him. Yeah, we'll get it. Uh, we'll get into all of it. But, uh, yeah, well, I, I can't wait to hear this, Dan. Uh, from your description, it sounds like it was a great conversation. So, so why don't we just uh, go to the tape? Well, welcome back, listeners. I'm joined by none other than Ralph Bakshi, the famous animator and director uh, behind a ton of favorite films, Fire and Ice, Fritz the Cat, Heavy Traffic. Lord of the Rings movies, I mean, so many great things. And uh, one of the things from very early in your, your career that we're specifically going to talk about today is the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon show, which I believe you took over for seasons two and three, correct? Yes, that's not that correct. So this, this uh, show, was this one of your first productions uh, under, you started Bakshi Productions? Was, was this a part of that early venture of yeah. yours? This is a very well. First, a very interesting. There's so many aspects to to the show. In other words, it, in the history of animation, animation wasn't the big finding thing that it is today. It was virtually on its way out of business because the theatrical short business had collapsed due to television, and television wasn't picking up as much animation as we thought it would. So studios were closing and the budgets were very low. Spider-Man was a syndicated show. So it was very, very difficult um, to get it started. But what was important about it was, what little I know about it, of what I've heard since, is the original people who had worked with Steve Grant, who was a production company or the distributor or the guy who sold it, they were having trouble. Grant Ray Lawrence, I think, with the company, that was doing Spider-Man, and they were having trouble with Steve. There were lawsuits uh, that were starting. I was working. I had worked with Steve up in Canada on Rocket Robin Hood, and uh, that collapsed. So I came back to New York at the same time Steve was having its problem with Grant. Wait, 
Dre Lawrence studio. I don't know who's, but I'm not saying it was their problem. I'm, I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers, but it was definitely a problem between both of those guys. Steve asked me if he, if I thought I could open up a studio and do it. To me, that was a godsend. I always wanted a studio and certainly an animation company and certainly it was an opportunity to have one. So of course I said, yeah. So the production was 12,000 to 10,000 and a half hour, which is even in those days was a little, very, very little. Um, but I said I'd do it because it would allow me to open up a studio and find a man um, with a great character, of course. I knew all the guys at Marvel Comics. Um, I knew Stan Lee very well. I thought it would be great. And I said, absolutely, yes. And then I said, yes, I got scared. But the point is, I just kept smiling. And I built a studio in the Garment Center in New York, <laughs> which was the cheapest rent going. But the, <laughs> Garment Center was, the Garment Center was collapsing. So when my mother and my family used to work in the old days to earn a living for a poor immigrant in Brownsville, I now have an animation company. And I walk out to the street and everyone's schlepping and they're trying to sell clothes. And I'm trying to produce Spider-Man. It was very funny. I remember the floor in the studio was tilted. It was so low. But we did it. We started. And yes, uh, Christine was having a, um, a problem with Grant Ray Lawrence. Uh, I don't know what the problem was. Nobody was paying anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, CBS hired you to be the creative director for a show you pitched called The Mighty Heroes, a sort of yeah. a superhero parody. Had you always been interested uh -huh. in, in superheroes, or was that just something you were playing around with at the time? When I was interested, first of all, superheroes, when I was a very young kid, um, eight or nine or seven or six, uh, Superman was definitely my hero. There's no question about it. You're back, back in the 40s. But I wasn't that interested in superheroes per se, which is why I was able to make fun of them and create the mighty heroes. Because to me, superheroes were kind of boring at one point. I was more interested in Mad Magazine um, <laughs> and the underground comics that were starting. I wasn't that interested in superheroes anymore. Um, the Marvel did a spectacular job with their new line of superheroes which were having emotional problems. All these superheroes now are having emotional problems. So Stanley thought that was interesting. But I wasn't crazy over superheroes to say, no. I what? love that you're right. I love Todd. And I love science fiction very much. And I certainly was crazy over Tolkien. So I was kind of leading towards science fiction and fantasy as opposed to a superhero. You kind of brought some of that taste, I think, into your seasons on the show. It, it certainly started to skew a little more fantastical and a little more psychedelic, I think, in, in your approach to uh, the heroes and villains that would appear on, on the show. Was that kind of a, a deliberate decision of yours to kind of lean into your your interests? Well, first of all, absolutely. I mean, first of all, my interests have always come first in all my animated films, which is how I was able to do so many odd and crazy and different things. In other words, to me, animation was a very difficult medium, and the only joy in it would be if you could put something you really loved in yourself in, or something personal, something you loved, like Lord of the Rings. So I, I thought that's, that was always basically how I played it. I wasn't that interested in just... I spent 10, 15 years at Terry Tunes doing characters that weren't mine, 
that I'm pretty bored with. Um, they were very old-fashioned characters. And just to learn how to do my craft, so by the time I got a little freedom, it was more important to me to find something I really liked to do, which is what I've always told uh, animators, that more important to do that than just that they're doing something for somebody else that you don't really care about. So uh, that's always uh, been how I've been able to enjoy the animation business. Now that the people I got to work on Spider-Man were all from comic books for, to lay them out, Jim Steranko and Gray Morrow, Wally Wood. I mean, I, I work with a lot of great comic book artists to do layouts, and um, they worked on Spider-Man. So I would have to admit the money was very, very low. The main goal wasn't trying to get quality. The main goal was just trying to get a, a, a show completed every week. Yeah. In other words, this was my first studio, and I'm not going to sit here and say that it wasn't extremely difficult, and all the, all the things that I wanted to do weren't done. Some of the things were done, but I used a lot of reuse, and I ran the footage, or had the money for time. It was very, very hard, but I had my studio, and it led to Fritz the Cat. I think the most important thing to me was that I had a studio that a couple of years later, I started for the cat in that studio, so that wouldn't have happened um, if it wasn't for Spider-Man. Yeah, absolutely. But I had a good time with Stan Lee. I had a good time with Stan Lee. <laughs> How could you not? I, I, I have to imagine. Oh, in those days, it was great. I'm also an idiot because basically he gave me all these black and white reproductions of all the Spider-Man, silver prints, they called them, of all the Spider-Man shows, those model shows, comic books. I stacked with them in the studio and so to look at the layout so, uh, of course I should have saved them but I did oh man you would have been you would be uh, in a, you know happily yeah. retired like you know rolling in it right I, now I got another one for you I have another one for you oh but no I, I, Terry, oh yeah oh yeah brilliant this was before the day of collections you have to understand back in the day everyone threw the animation out now I faced some stuff but I remember it at Terryton, I mean, there's a huge building, huge, huge building in the back parking lot, full of animations from the history of Terryton. So the production manager comes over to me, and he's like me, and he says, hey, Ralph, we're going to burn all the stuff. You can take as much as you want. And he what is all the Terryton chips? Oh, yeah. With everything Terryton's ever animated, I could have taken great Oh, stuff. man. Well, yeah, but see, I was living in Brooklyn with a wife in a three-room apartment with a son. <laughs> I didn't know where I'd put this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I had I, uh, said no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, speaking but, of, uh, of kind of the animations, you know, what, what was it like to, you know, the transition process from season one to two? What, like... How many how many assets did they give you? I mean, you obviously reuse them a lot, but was that a huge part of the process? Looking over what you were given? Well, that's a good question. Um, sometimes it's harder to sometimes it's harder to find stuff than it is just to do it. But what I did use a lot was where this wing. In other words, finding and going from building to building. They did they did some um, wonderful Grant Lawrence did some wonderful Spidey swing to the you know, through the city or landing on walls. And I, I got all that stuff together. And I use that a lot. Uh, as you can see, sometimes I, I said, look, make the music fun because I'm going to swing forever. <laughs> but, uh, 
I use a lot of their stuff. The rest of the stuff, no. So it gets, you know, the amount of work to pile through it and look through it and uh, the time and money it would take for people to organize it, it was better just to go ahead and do it than try to find something that might or might not work. I just mean when I was in trouble, I didn't use stuff from other films. And I, I would do anything to complete deadline. But Prince was not an easy man to work for. And if you missed the deadline, he didn't pay you. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. He, he, he was a very, very difficult person. So making sure that I finished every week was the only way I can keep the company open or I'd get into the same fight with the Grant Ray Lawrence guy. So uh, it was very important for me to finish every movie under any condition. And that was what I was thinking about more than anything else. I'll be quite frank, you know, like, I'd like to sit here and wax elegantly. Um, I was glad to be doing Spider-Man. I did try things that would later on end up in my feature film. There was some stuff that I tried that was unusual in content for what television was doing at the time because of the character and because of what Marvel had set up. You know, Marvel was a very hip comic book company, so that was fun. And the artist I was working with, the comic book artist, other than the animators, they were teaching me a lot. The comic book business and what Spider-Man was all about. So it was a learning curve for me. Speaking of Marvel, you know, a lot of the first season of the show really pulled heavily from Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's comics, even, you know, quoting directly from them. And, and one of your first episodes, the or I guess your first episode, The Origin of Spider-Man, it, it is pulled straight from the pages of the comic. What, did Marvel have a, a, a large input on the show? Um, or or did, was that a lot of like, just your research and, and investment in, in the character? Well, <laughs> uh, listen, Stanley could cure less. I mean, they didn't have any input in the show when I wanted them to. They were too busy turning on comic books. They didn't care. In other words, if it wasn't the comic book, it was worthless. You know what I'm saying? So, Stanley, it was all about money and the residuals that Marvel was getting. But they, they could care less for an animated thing. They could never live up to what Ditko or the rest of the guys could do on a printed page. Um, so I caught lunch. I could have done anything I wanted. They, they had no, they never checked the script. Uh, they never looked at it. Never got, I never got notes. You know, I just go out drinking with Stan a couple and he'd be happy how it's going. And I complained about Steve Grant. That's about as far as it went. But Stanley could care less. No, he didn't care. That's so funny because I imagine that the show itself was responsible for spreading the awareness of the character far more than the comic ever could. I mean, I'm sure it had an audience easily like ten times that of uh, of the comic. I don't know. You know, that's something you could say, and I understand why you're saying it should be correct, but I'm not sure it wasn't a very huge comic. It was a very huge comic character already. I don't know if the quality of the film uh, was able to push it to a bigger audience. Uh, if you say so, I'll, I'll take your word for it. I, I have no way of knowing, but my, my feeling was that it was a major character at the point, and we weren't doing the same kind of justice to it uh, that the comic book comic books were. In other words, I was, I, was, I wouldn't say very disappointed, but, you know, 
I didn't think it was the greatest thing in the world of what what the studio was doing because of the the lack of money and um, the very tough schedule. Having to start a, a having to start a series while Steve Krantz and the other studio are having lawsuits, you know, fighting over who, whose artwork is it. I mean, Grant. Oh, that's another thing. Grant Ray Lyrant uh, refused to send stuff for us to use, even if I wanted to use it. You know what I'm saying? Because they were yeah. fighting over money. So it was a very difficult period. Um, if Stan Lee cared more, and if Bob cared more, I thought I think we could have done more. Because that would have been important for me to, you know, to put a wedges in me and Grant. But Stan Lee had his own problems with getting out of college. Yeah. I mean, you know, the amount of comic books he had to get out of month was astronomical, and Marvel was going through the roof in the 60s. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. So I'm trying to remember what, what my attitude was. It was basically, my attitude basically was, oh my God, I finally have my own studio. I did that. Oh my God, it's a good character to have it with. The ratings were good. I wasn't happy with the product, in fact, because of the amount of reviews I had to use to make the could make a deadline. There was just no time. So that, that was but the fact that I had a studio was doing Spider-Man. I felt very good about in the Garment Center. <laughs> I could train my parents to get to work every day. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. You know? And I ate these lunch and that's where all the garment workers were, and they didn't know I was doing Spider-Man in their midst. <laughs> Of your episodes that uh, features, I think, the least amount of reuse is the that first episode, the origin of Spider-Man, where you know it, you you pretty faithfully go through that story and add a little bit of your own flair to it. But a lot of the animation was really new uh, for that episode, other than like you said, the swinging stuff. You know, what was your thought about kind of you know starting the second season off with going back? To his origin story, can you can you remember your thoughts at the time about that? And yeah, and, sure. Yeah. I, well, you know, before we fell behind, you know, animation studios, you know, we, there's an old saying, you know, if you you could lose five minutes a day, this is crazy. You could lose five minutes a day in production, and in a couple of months, you're like really falling behind, fifteen or twenty minutes. So what I'm saying is, so when you start off the season, you're not behind. You know, you could take your time. You, you're not racing the clock. You could probably do any your best work in the early days. As the season rolls on and you fall further and further behind, you get more and more frantic, and there's less and less that you want to do to stop. Anything that would be difficult in production is a no-no. If something would be too hard to do to stop you from making the deadline, you had to make a decision that you could not do it. See, I was both producer and director, so I had to wear two hats. In other words, uh, the producer's got to make deadlines and the director wants to put more in. It was always a very difficult situation. <laughs> You're your own worst enemy. It, you had to be. Or, or the studio. One thing I knew is if the studio closed down, it would close down. I really didn't want that. We made it. It was very difficult, but we were very... Uh, some bumps along the way. We were very successful in obtaining a studio. And, uh, you know, without, we weren't backed by anyone. You know, I had about there and all these other studios had backers. There was no one backing, backing my studio. It was just me, whatever buddy Kranz decided he wanted to send me that week. 
So it's touch and go. This is a true story, Spider-Man. So if Stan Lee was more active, more vocal about the characters, that would have helped out. You know, I would have loved to, you know, bring him in. But he really didn't care, I'll say that. Which yeah. I say very clearly now, because it made, I mean, do you, do you give him one of that top characters and be, no one caring what I did with it? It's kind of extraordinary, I thought. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's kind of a, uh, exists in a, in a very unique place, being one of their first show and and just kind of getting to bring this character to the screen for the first time. It, it's why I, I hold that episode of yours, the first one, in such high regard, because I do think it really does capture the spirit of the character and and even like some of Dicko's art style, you know, I, I, it 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 truly does seem like a comic come to life, and I I would have loved to seen more like it. I feel like it's truly unique well, I, from that time. Well, you thank you, but basically, I, I just told you know it's interesting because I just told you what why. In other words, I had all the time in the world to do what I wanted to do with it before the panic set in. So I took advantage of it. In other words, I knew I could not think straight uh, four months or three months down the road. You know, meaning if a guy handed a script, I couldn't even think. There's no way I can hand it back to him to change it. Even if I hated the script, I'd have to put it into production or we right. wouldn't make the deadline. So those were the problems I was facing. Very happily, though, I don't want to make, I don't want to, I was a, this is what animation in New York City in the old days was like. This is Terry Tunes, in other words, uh, this was always the problem as a young animator when I came into the business that was dying in that point that we had to face. This was not a new or unusual problem. You had to face it and try to figure out how best can I make this thing work. Now, I liked Spider-Man and I liked the characters and I liked the, the whole structure of it. But, but compared to Mighty Mouse, and Echo and Jekyll and the rest of the Terry Tunes characters. Basically, I was very happy to work on this stuff. It now stuff coming back to me. I was thinking about when we first started the door. But it was such a step up. I think it had a lot to do with me getting into adult animation because Marvel was certainly upping the ante for what they did with Spider-Man and their comic books as opposed to the old. Uh, comic books, DC, and everything that was very mundane. So working on Spider-Man and the kind of character he was, even the teenagers in high school, and you know, driving up in the car, that's unusual. When you look at Anna Barbera at the time with Yogi Bear and everything, uh, you could see how it, you know, that stuff's unusual um, in animation. Okay. It was adult. Yes, it was more adult than anything on the air because because of what Stanley and Marvel people have done with the characters, so I was very happy to be doing it. You got to do a lot of you know like exciting things, or you know maybe not considered that exciting, but like original with like Peter and his college life and trying out for sports teams and even dating you know Susan Shaw, the character that you created. You know, uh, That's right. I just think. Whether or not it was, you know, as wholly successful as it might have been, it definitely was charting new territory, like you said Marvel was doing. But even in animation, well, you're I... coming back. You're coming back. You think they're coming... This is a long time ago. Yeah. So things are coming back to me. Yes, now I'm starting to remember. Yes, I just starting to break through. That was very... It had wonderful things to it that animation had never done, and I knew it. 
And I felt that, um, and I think it affected everything I did from then on. I really do. This was way before Fritz and traffic and everything. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like you go to college with, with those kids and you hang out. I thought, well, people weren't doing that in those days. They were going to Yosemite National Park, you know, so um, with Yogi Bear and stuff. So, they, you know, I mean, yes, things are coming back. It was hip. I hate the word, but that's <laughs> what we use in those it was in those days. It was hipper than most. Yeah, as, as tough as the budget was. Well, that's crazy. I mean, basically, we had a we had a gold mine there. It was you know, if ever pulled together, the show would still be running. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, um, I'm I'm curious about the like production process because I watched you know your seasons of the show, especially as they kind of go on, and. I have to imagine you with a team of people looking over the, the footage, you know, the reuses you already have, and trying to say, how can we puzzle piece these together and make a story with different voice recordings and come up with something new as a sort of kind of like puzzle? It, was that really the kind of atmosphere of the show is how can we piece this stuff together and, and make something new out of it? Well, first of all, there was a feeling that we were doing something different. There was a feeling that we wish we had more money and time, but, you know. And there was sort of different ideas on how we could piece stuff together to finish the show. Am I clear? In other words, yeah. um, I don't remember. I don't really remember. I mean, I, I, don't, really, I don't, don't really remember what I was doing. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> I'm trying to, you know. It's fair. It was yeah. it was 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a bunch of the episodes have you listed as the dialogue coach uh, on them. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious, you know, usually if you're the showrunner on, on a show, you get to pick your own voice actors, but you kind of inherited a, a whole slew of them. Um, you right. know, what was it like working with, you know, people like Paul Souls uh-huh. on, on, on this, uh, on the show? Well, First of all, uh, I love recording sessions. The actors that they had, the Grant Ray Lawrence, those guys put together are fine. You know, they're all professional, good guys. So I, when Grant Ray Lawrence stepped out, I really directed the voice record on all the shows. You know, it was part of my job. Same voice coach or whatever. You know, I never looked at the titles in those days. But I directed the voice thing. The actors were no problem to me. I hire, have to hire new actors with strange voices or something. New York was full of them. Uh, <laughs> that was a good crew that Grant realized that put together. I thought they did a good job. Yeah, I agree. And and, and many of them, you know, their voices have filled the uh, the animation world. I mean, they you would hear a lot of those voices all over again. That's right. I thought Grant realized the video did a good job, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was a... Uh, I had two feelings about it. I, you know, I liked the, I liked what they had done. I felt sorry for what had happened with them, uh, but I was also knew it was an opportunity for me. Grant uh, would have given it to another studio and taken it away from them anyhow. So I said yes. Uh, but they were good guys. Grant really Lawrence, they, they were good animators. Yeah, the first season of the show is really, really quite fun. Right. Speaking of the the first season, you know, like one of the things that has really lasted the test of time from the show is, is that theme song. I mean, it just appears everywhere. Even in the new Spider-Man movie just last year, you had the, the you know, whole 
you know, professional orchestra performing it in, in the movie. And the music of the whole show is really standout. You know, like, wh- how did that work for you guys? How did you, um, you know, work with the music, you know, record new things? It really is a, a wonderful part of the show. Well, music has always been very important to me in all my films. If you have good music, you can have... Uh, music is in, in film in general is is everything. I feel music is everything. You know, tells you how to feel, tells you where to go. That's why I used so much rock in my early films, because I knew exactly how it made me feel. Um, so music is a very, very important item. Serge Eisenstein, one of my favorite directors, a Russian in the old days, wrote a book about music and film, and uh, I I read it when I was young. I thought it was spectacular. So music was everything. The guy, that I forget what the stuff was recorded, but I speak to the composer on the phone. You know, we had these conversations about the script and where to lay the music in and everything. So how I felt about this or that. Again, it was very, pretty much how to let the guy do what he wanted. And we'd have conversations on the phone. But uh, I was never in doubt that the music was good enough to show. Yeah, I know a lot of people still you know, listen to the soundtrack today. A lot, At least a lot of our listeners do. They They often comment on how much they still enjoy that music, and especially that theme That's song. Good. Well, you know, um, I haven't seen the show. I haven't seen any of the shows because I sat on the movie over in the old days and said, uh, all right, ship it. You know, I was, once it was out, out of the studio, I never saw it again. I never watched it on television. And, and I haven't seen a live-action Spider-Man movie. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed away. From that, um, you know, I kind of like La Strada. Uh, I liked them. I thought La Strada was a brilliant film, and you know, I love the old European stuff and Main yeah. Street. So, you know, I, I kind of stay. I'm an, old, I'm an old school guy. I'm not too big on superhero movies. Well, it now, might, I'm so I, so it, they're great. I mean, the production values are unbelievable. It might be worth getting a bucket of popcorn just to hear. Uh, Hollywood do the version of the theme song from your show. Where, where do I hear that? In the new Spider-Man Homecoming movie, they the movie opens with the theme song from your '67 show. Now? It's not in theaters now, but you should be able to get it. You know, pretty much anywhere. I will take a look at what's the name of it. Spider-Man Please, Homecoming. Okay, I'll look at. I think I think okay. you'll <laughs> at least get a you'll at least get a laugh out of hearing that theme song. I bet. Oh, I love what you said. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm up here in the mountains in New Mexico. Uh, I'm 80 years old, you know, so I don't get around like I used to. Sure. This is fun, though. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'll ask you our final question, and something I ask everybody that um, I have on the show. And, it, you know, what does it mean to you that you got to work, you know, so early on in the life of this of this character, you got to work on establishing the character of Spider-Man in the world. Like, does that, what does that mean to you? Uh, I think, um, well, you know, there was, it's interesting you should say that because there was always a tremendous joy that I had my own studio that was as important to me as the character I was working on. You know, uh, so those two were in conflict. When I worked for somebody else, you could think, wax elegantly about the character. 
I was very proud to have a studio in New York working with a very famous Marvel character, Spider-Man. I thought that was sensational. And I felt very proud and very great about that. I don't know how much I affected the character to do the beard. I mean, what, what you're hearing from me is having not seen the films ever since they left the studio. I really don't know if they're good or bad or, or anything. In other words, I have avoided looking at them and the fear that I they would hate them. So, you know, I've stayed pretty safe not looking at them. I may go back and I'll look at them. I don't know what I did with the character. If you tell me I blew it, I'd probably believe you. Am I clear what I'm saying? I don't know if the film was, if the Spider Man show was a disaster or not. You see, I was working so hard and so fast, and Stan Lee never called me up and said, good or bad. The Kranz could care less. So I don't know what we did to tell you the truth. I'll tell you, there's a lot of uh, of our fans who it was a big part of their childhood who really revere the show and and you know really? for, for for all its faults and 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 all of its pleasures, you know it 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 is a, a part of a lot of people's nostalgia. You know they 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 grew up on this thing and it means a lot to them. Well, I love what you're saying because I have no idea. So you asked me a question, I could just ask. I couldn't answer it because I don't know. Well, that's I'm, good. It's, a, it's a personal that. question. Well, never say whatever I did on finding it, it fell far below what I wanted to do, or could have done, or should have done. You know, I had, you know, I had a decent money, or had a great studio in California or something. So, you know, these things always fell below what I felt they should do. So, to protect yourself, you just go get just go get a drink. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how most of the animals, you know, live. Yeah, um, I'm being frank because trying to, in other words. No, um, no, I, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. You know, maybe, maybe time heals all wounds in some way. Both so, because you just healed mine. <laughs> I mean, look at the show. I'm definitely gonna, I'm definitely gonna want to hear the, the Hollywood version of that. I definitely, I that's good. I'm gonna have to send you a link. That would be spectacular. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you, thanks. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Ralph. It really meant a lot. Where's your partner? What's he like? Oh, uh, you know, he's just like me. He's a lot of fun. Uh, we're big historians of the characters. Well, your questions were great. Well, um, thanks. All right, thanks, man. All right, thank you again. Well, again, I wanted to thank Ralph Bakshi for taking time out of his schedule to talk to us. I mean, it was a long time ago that this show was made. Fifty years ago, he got brought on to this product. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. It still seems to have, uh, you know, at least a, a strong place in the, in, in the history of his life and, uh, and company and work. And uh, I couldn't thank him enough for talking to me about it. Who knows? Maybe we'll have him back on again in the future. That that's that would be amazing. Well, we can have him back, but you know, we we want to welcome you all back and thank you for joining us uh, for this fifth episode of our second season of the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Uh, Dan, our next episode will be out in about two weeks. 
Uh, my spidey senses say it's probably going to be something more based on the comics again. What's it? What's the title of that show? Yeah, it's going to be called the Stone Tablet Saga. Not one of our catchier titles, but uh, <laughs> it's a working title. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be our discussion about the first true Spider-Man multi-part event, which we're all so familiar with now. Um, and that means we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man numbers sixty-eight to seventy-five. And a story that, you know, I think really marked a turning point for where the series would become, you know, more socially conscious and interested in problems facing the real world, which is kind of Marvel's, you know, uh, bread and butter. Yeah, I mean, as much as their characters uh, were always made to kind of reflect real world characters with real world problems, I think in terms of social awareness and, and real, real world problems like poverty, war, race, uh, the, this series in, uh, for Spider-Man is really where that, that turn took. And I, 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 I look forward to talking about this with you, Dan. It's not even so much that I think this is like one of the greatest stories ever, but it's, in, it's an interesting story to kind of frame where the series would be headed in the years to follow. So uh, I think this should be a great, great conversation. And uh, it's an eight-part story, which is highly unusual. Correct. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 798. Uh, remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, except for probably Amazing Spider-Man number 800. Do we know what that's going to cost yet, Dan? I dread finding out. Okay. They haven't let it out of the bag yet, which means it's probably going to be like $14 or something. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, for $3.99 a month uh, and our Patreon uh, subscriber, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Swarm B-Book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork. Uh, Dan... I finally got my print in the mail of our awesome commissioned artwork, and man, am I happy to have a copy of this uh, in my possession now. Great. Well, I'm very glad you got them, and uh, I think we'll be announcing relatively soon who our next big artist is, just the minute that we can confirm it. We have it. We've done all the work. We just have to confirm it so that we can get it to you guys. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, guys, be sure to check out some of our other shows like The Ultimate Spin as they wrap up Bendis' run with Miles Morales or The Untold Talks of Spider-Man where this week they're going to be discussing the Marvel Knights Spider-Man run by Mark Millar and Terry Dodson. I know that's – I don't know if it's not really a favor of yours, Mark, but uh, we've talked about it a little bit on the show before. I find it overrated more than anything else, which is kind of interesting <laughs> that it's on an untold talks because I feel like people talk about it. I don't want to get, I don't want to poke holes in the concept. Never mind. We're gonna, they're <laughs> going to be talking about it. So uh, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, and plus we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you guys to join. So just check this episode's description for a link to join our Spider Man talking community. You can just talk about Spider-Man in any which way you want. And you can talk to me, too, because I'm always on it because I'm a little bit of an addict. <laughs> I need to get on it more, Dan. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, where can people find you if not on the Amazing Spider Slack? Well, you could, you could always find me on Twitter, just, you know, voicing my opinions about all things Spider-Man and otherwise. And that handle is at ChasingASMblog. Of course, you can still buy my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. 
got a got a new review up recently. Uh, so thank you for your, for for you to add, adding that. And I ask anyone else that's out there, you know, if you bought the book from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever, Goodreads, wherever you write little reviews, just put a little something up there if, if you've read the book. Uh, kind of keeps the community growing, keeps the book from fading into obscurity, uh, which none of us want to do. We all want to be remembered, right, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about you, Dan? Where can we find you? Yeah, well, you can remember to find me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, where I am also tweeting all about Spider-Man and various other things, but mostly Spider-Man, and making my like big predictions about Mephisto and all that stuff, and probably digging my own predictions grave. Uh, but but th- there you go. And uh, you can also read my writing over at AmazingSpiderTalk.com where I'm writing the review. Well, I wrote the most recent review of Amazing Spider-Man 798, so go check that out over on there. Mark, we like to close this show with a saying that actually gets e- echoed in the first episode of Ralph Bakshi's run uh, on the Spider-Man cartoon show. And what would that be? It's... Does whatever a spider can? No. Oh, it's with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. 